Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We thank you for your word and the directions that we're going to see there. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we look at tonight. In your son's precious name, amen. amen. Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting at verse 15. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son is hers that was hated, then it shall be when he makes his sons to inherit that, he, that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which, was in, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn and shall give him the double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength and the right of the firstborn is his. So we're going to continue this. We're going to be going through the next couple of weeks on a lot of these very short direct rules that God is going to give to his people. And we've covered last week, if you remember, we covered the idea that when they went into battle, if, one, if there was a foreign woman out after the promised land that caught their eye, they could make, the, make her her wife, and he gave her all the different rules on, on how that was to be. And if for some reason he decided that he had no favor in her, they gave his rules for that. He couldn't, just, he couldn't sell her to somebody else. So... This time we're going to go, if a man has two wives, one beloved and one hated. And this is kind of an interesting thing to me. The, the idea of polygamy in the first place is kind well, of a strange thought. Wives, yeah. But he says one's loved and one's hated. It's kind of going back to, to Jacob when he got married to Leah and Rachel. And he got tricked into, got really into his, huh? Got really got yeah, he got, he got tricked pretty good. Yeah. And he had one that he hated and he had one that he loved. But this is something, if you read through the scriptures, almost all the time when you see polygamy mentioned, one of the wives is the loved one. And the other one, I think hated may be a strong word for most of them. But there's the, the favored and all the rest <laughs> that aren't as favored in, when you look at, the, at these uh, polygamous marriages. And he says, if you have the two wives and they both bear a child, and the firstborn is the one that belongs to the one year that's least favorite. Okay, now this is going to be a problem because in, again, the rules that we deal with in the scripture are going against culture. The culture would basically say you could give it to whoever, whichever son you wanted to give as long as he was your, your firstborn of one, one of your wives and it didn't matter. This was what God did with Abraham. Abraham's firstborn was with Hagar. And God says, no, I haven't, I've rejected Hagar. Hagar was the son born after the flesh, and Isaac is going to be the son born after the spirit. And God totally ignores Ishmael uh, all, through his, all through those times. And, and when Hagar, when, when, excuse me, Abraham said, let Ishmael stand before you and be great, God says, I've heard your prayer. He will be great. Now, that's a prayer that most Jews wish that Abraham had never made, okay? Because Ishmael is the father of many of the nations of the Middle East that are their enemies. Now, not all of them, but many of them. And so Abraham's prayer was, make Ishmael great, and they've been a thorn in the side of the flesh of Israel ever since. So this is a, a big deal, but God says, I've rejected him. But yet here he's saying, you're not going to make that decision on your own. You're going to honor your firstborn as your firstborn. 
Why is it important for the firstborn to be honored correctly? Because it's a very important position. It is the one that carries on the name of the family. The firstborn is the one that's going to carry the name of the family. When the father dies and he passes out his inheritance, the firstborn gets a double portion of the inheritance. And as I've told you before, that's not so that he's richer than his brothers. It's so that he has money to, to protect and, and uh, help his brothers and sisters because he's responsible for the family. Now, what happened if it was a girl, the firstborn? It was always the male that got the firstborn. <laughs> Firstborn, right? Yeah, they, they were they were enlightened as we saw last week, but not quite that enlightened yet. Uh, but so the son was to be lifted up, and he could not be disinherited from his proper position, because God did not going to have him dishonored just because his mother was the one that wasn't honored. Jesus is the firstborn of God, and he we are adopted into his family, Jesus will not lose his inheritance, and then he passes that inheritance on to us as well. But so this is the idea. Firstborn, it's an honored position. And we look at somebody like Esau, who despised his birthright. If you remember the story of Ishmael, he came in after hunting, and he said he was starving to death. Uh, And we know that he probably was not starving to death. He might have been very hungry, but he was definitely not starving to death after one day of hunting. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge or beans. Esau. To to Jacob. Ishmael, Ishmael, yes, they were both firstborns. And Ishmael, well, Jacob, well, Esau sold his firstborn position to Jacob. Uh, But this is something that's very important for us to understand. This is God saying, you're going to do this the right way no matter how you feel. And last night we were talking about how we cannot let feelings drive what we do. It's so easy for us as humans to go with what we feel. That's why I like the, the statement I have up on the, bullet, on the PowerPoint on Sunday morning. Uh, failure is not an event. It is a judgment about the event. When we fail, it is not an event. It is what we say about the event. And you know what? We're usually wrong. Because God turns that failure and says, this is how it's going to be turned into a strength in your life. Because our judgment of the event is not necessarily correct either. So this is why we make this distinction. I don't need to judge what happens in my life as good or bad because God promises us that all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Even what I look at and say, this is a terrible failure, God's saying, just wait and see what I'm going to do with it. Wait and see. If you look back on your life, how many of your failures are actually turned into be a strengthening block for you? You realize, I got stronger because of this failure. Not every failure at that time, but many of our failures turn into be very strong places in our life because we grow by having experienced them. So again, we need to be careful how we judge even the events in our life because we're judging them before they're finished. And we may find that the very thing that we were ready to judge and say was terrible and awful and the worst thing that ever happened to him, we might look back on it and say, this was the greatest thing that happened to me. 
And this is, there's lots of proverbs that go on this where somebody has a bunch of bad stuff happen and then good stuff happen and bad stuff happen and good stuff happen. And basically the idea is you never know what it is until later. Okay. Uh, I heard one on the radio just the other day. This man, you know, wanted a son, wanted a son and couldn't get a son. Finally got a son in his old age. And he goes, oh, that's a wonderful thing. And he goes, well, I don't know about that. We'll see. Yeah. And then his son got run over by, by a, car, a cart and got, you know, hurt. And he goes, well, that's a terrible thing. Well, he goes, we'll see. And his son was older at that time. And there was a war. And his son was, had a broken leg that he was healing from and didn't have to go to war. And he goes, well, that's a good thing. And he goes, well, see, yeah. But we, there's lots of these types of stories out there. The Chinese had a similar one where good things happen. He goes, but every good thing turned into a bad thing and every bad thing turned into a good thing. We need to be very careful that we don't judge any event in our life by what we think it is. Because we don't know what it's going to be until after we get to the end. And we may look at something and say, it's a terrible thing in my life. And then God says, no, this is a good thing. It prepared you for this. It helps you get strong for this. It helps you grow in this. And here we're saying, don't take it away from the firstborn. Don't take away his, his right, his position, his, his position in the family. And he says, why? Because he is the beginning of your strength, the firstborn. And people tend to have a little soft spot for their firstborn usually. In, the, in their families. The firstborn usually has a, a soft spot in their heart because it's the one they get to practice on first. <laughs> it's the one they get to make all the mistakes on. <laughs> and I always thought it was funny, you know, my firstborn, he had, he's the one that blazed the trail for everything. You know, I remember he couldn't get the car keys for anything. By the time my daughter came along, the fourth one, it's like, we're throwing her the keys, go to the store. She didn't even have to ask for them half the time. It's like, go to the store. You know, the other ones had to ask and beg and, and plead, you know. We have this place where we change over time and things change in what we look at them and we want to be careful how we look at our life because if we're looking at something as bad we're going to maybe treat it with regret and God says I've got a plan for it it's going to be for good you could bring this up he doesn't say it is good okay never think that the bad things are good they're not necessarily good but he makes them for good he makes us grow. He makes us learn. He, he makes us get stronger from it. And we want to be very careful because sometimes people go, well, I don't believe everything is good. And I will agree with them. Not everything is good. If somebody loses a child before they pass away, that is not a good thing. And it will never be a good thing. But it can be used to help them be empathetic with other people and go through something that just makes them stronger and more dependent upon God but the event itself was not good and never would be good. So we want to be very careful on that and look at this. And it says, you know, he's going to get his double portion, his double portion in verse 17, because he is the firstborn. And he's basically saying you can't just change your firstborn just because you want to. I'm sure Esau, when he made the deal, probably figured that his dad would never make it, make it stick. But in this case, his father did surprise him. Now, his father was going to give him the blessing of the firstborn, even though he wasn't going to get the double inheritance and the name. And Rebecca helped change that plan. All right, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, 
Then shall his father and mother lay hold of him and bring him in unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of the place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he shall die. So shall you put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. I have heard people say that this was never implemented, and it would be a very hard thing to think about being implemented. You know, basically you're telling you, my son is so rebellious that his mom and I are failures. Go, you know, he needs to die. This is the seriousness that God has with rebellion. All right? So it says, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son. Literally, this is rebellious and contentious. This is somebody who argues and fights every time you say, you say, you know, you can't go out and they're, and they're going to fight with you every moment and go out anyway. Uh, you tell them the sun is shining and they're going to tell you it's cloudy outside and fight with you. There are people like that. And he's saying, you have that son who's that way and will not obey. Will not obey. This is a serious issue that God is dealing with. All through the scriptures, he's telling Israel, number one, he's saying, you're my rebellious children and you have not obeyed. So he's almost a picture of Israel in this statement. And God's grace says that he's not going to kill them because he's protected them all along. And Moses, remember back many chapters ago when Moses and God's going, you're, these people are so rebellious, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses says, no, you can't do that because that'll harm your reputation and your name. Everybody, the nations will say that you brought them out of Egypt because, and you couldn't keep them, so you let them die. And so he talked God out of it and then went down and got in trouble with, <laughs> with the people himself. And it says he won't listen. This son won't listen. And that's a serious thing, in their, especially in their day, because you were supposed to honor your elders. You were supposed to listen to your elders. You weren't supposed to fight and argue with them as a child. But they're not listening to their parents. They're not obeying their parents. They're, uh, and it says, you says, you will not obey the voice of your parents or the voice of his mother when they have chastened him and will not hearken unto them, will not obey them. Okay, this is something, we're seeing this in a really big way in our day and age where the children, it's amazing to me when I watch parents who can't handle a two and three year old and the two and three year olds running, uh, running them and yelling at them and saying no and, and trying to control their parents and the parents can't seem to control a little child. One that you could pick up and carry to their bedroom if you had to and yet this kid is out of control. It's obvious if people are like that out in the public then they have no discipline at home. I never had to spank my kids when I was out in public because they knew number one that if I said something, they were going to get it when they got home. But they were disciplined at home so that when we went out, they were not a rebellious brat. But this is, the children are really a reflection of what they are at home is going to be taken care of. And if you can't control a child even before they're in school, forget it once they get into school and learn and, and get taught by these people that your parents can't spank you or, or discipline you. You can't control them at a young age. You're going to be really in trouble as they get older. But you've got to understand this is what they're seeing on TV in their shows. This is what they're seeing where they're being taught that there's no respect. They're being taught that parents have no authority, that the school has no authority. They can't do anything. They, you know, so it's, 
But this is, we bombard them with all these images, all these thoughts, and then it's not a surprise when they act out what they see. Because their TV shows are very disrespectful to adults. Even the shows that we watch as adults, are the kids are disrespectful to our adults. And why we put up with it, I don't know. But this is where we're at right now. Our world is getting evil, disrespectful. And God says that if they're going to be that way, God puts a high value on obeying authority. And we've talked about this at various times. Who are our authorities? Well, number one, our parents are our authority. And we get older, that, that relationship changes to a degree. But we're still to be respectful to our to our parents at any age. We are, have a, there's a hierarchy in the family that God places in there, the, the husband, the wife, and the children. In the church, there's the pastor in the church, and, God, and Jesus is the pastor over that. In our nation, that's our nation's government, and then, our, and then the people. And God says all through these things, obey the authorities. No matter what level you're looking at, our duty is to obey. Now, we know that there are times when you are to disobey. The disciples showed that many times when they said, when they were told not to preach, they said we need to obey God rather than man. But as I've been telling you, if you, if you disobey authority, the authority still has the right to punish you even though you're doing what God says. And the disciples understood that. When they disobeyed, they took their beatings and their imprisonments and they rejoiced that they were worthy of suffering for Christ. But they knew that because they disobeyed government, government had the right to, even though it was wrong, enforce that punishment. We need to be very conscious. If we decide that we're going to disobey authority, the authority has the right to punish. Even if we're disobeying for the right reasons. Okay, We're obeying God rather than man, but man still has rules and they still will have the, the right to get those. Now, they will have to answer to God later on, but we want to keep this in mind. God is saying this son is not being obedient. And this is at a time when they were generally supposed to be obedient and, and were usually obedient. The one thing I read in this thing, and it's kind of a thing that gets me, is by the parents bringing this son to the, to the city elders, they're basically saying, our son's rebellious, but what else are they saying? We're total failures as parents. Okay. Yeah, we're we're so fail, we so failed in this case that we, you know, that he is so bad. We're going to have to say, you know, get rid of him because he's so bad and get, you know. But at the same time, the, this is also a problem for the town. But in one sense, God was saying, you know, if somebody is so bad that the parents can't take him, then somebody in the village does need to step up and help out. This is something that men need to do when, they, when they're around single mothers, or especially with boys, be able to help out that mother. There was a time on a Sunday school where this young guy smart-mouthed his mom, who was a single mom. He just happened to do it while I was walking down the hallway. <laughs> and I took him in the room, on the side room, and, and I, had a, I had a long talk with him after he stopped crying because he was, trying, he was used to being able to cry and manipulate his mom. And I told him, when you're done faking this tears, I will, play, I will talk to you. And he goes, I'm not faking. You can't say that. I go, well, when you're done faking, we will, we will talk. So he finally stopped. I told him, you're going, you are going to re, uh, apologize to your mom because you're not going to be disrespectful. That is not what God wants you to do. And long story on this, but this is what God's saying. The parents are to do it, but the, the community is also to say, try to help them. In churches, we need to help the single parents. We need to help 
The older individuals who have successfully gone through this need to help the younger generation. Even if you've unsuccessfully gone through it, maybe you can help this younger generation and say, don't do what I did. Right. So did he apologize? Yes, he did. Okay. Oh, yeah, he had no choice in the matter. He was going to apologize. Okay, let's get back on target here. But God is talking here about authority, being able to honor and respect authority. And what we need to do, number one, as adults and parents, is demonstrate, number one, that we are submitted to our authorities. It's very hard to get our kids to submit to authority when we gripe about authorities. When I first moved to Kingman, I took the youth on a trip and uh, for the church. Uh, was The youth leader couldn't do it that week. First time I'd ever driven to Phoenix, I was going through Wiki up, and where it's that speed trap. I didn't see the speed, on, the speed limit fall down, and I got pulled over in the church van with 13 teenagers. <laughs> but what really impressed them, number, I was lucky I only got a warning, but what really impressed them is a couple of them said, you're so much different than my father because if my father, when my father gets pulled over, he's cursing and swearing and all these other things. I'm going, I got pulled over. They're the authority. I didn't see the speed, on, the speed limit change, but I will take the ticket that I'm going to get because I, I deserve it. What did I tell those kids about authority from a Christian point of view? That you respect authority no matter what. It was so huge that when I sat down and was trying to go to sleep that night with the boys, we were having a long discussion because they're going, tell us more about Christianity that you follow because it was different from what they were used to seeing. We need to set that example in our families. And plus, you were acting as a Christian, like maybe some people... I was being a Christian. I was, it, was, it was day. It wasn't words and doing something different. But we, as parents, a lot of times, and I've said this just the other day, many of our kids leave Christianity not just because they're being taught wrong doctrines by school and, and college, but they leave because of what they see in their parents. They see their parents go to church maybe, maybe even three times a week. But outside of church, they don't see them read their Bible. They don't see them pray. They don't see them uh, interacting with authorities as a Christian. They don't see them interacting with, with all these different things that are Christian. And what does it tell them? God is not real. Then they go to school and they tell them there's no such thing as God or God is not real. And they already believe it because their parents weren't living that way. And I can tell you, I worked for kids for over three decades. And I can't tell you how many times I would hear kids tell me about their parents at home. If you work with kids, you hear the stories about home. And I would hear things about pastors that I wish I had never heard. Because their pastor's kids would come along and say, you know what, my dad is this when he's at home. I'm going, I don't, we don't, let's just pray for him. We don't need to go there. How do we interact with all of authority? And this is what this verse is really about. Authority. Being in submission to authority. And God says it's very important. And remember what we've said about submission. The, the whole word about submission has this really bad connotation. But the word in Greek is hupotasso. And it means to align yourself under somebody. It's really a military term that the private is below the corporal who is below the sergeant, who is below the lieutenant, who is below the captain and major and general. Not because they're dumber than the person above them or not because they are even less 
qualified than the person above them. The person above them has a title that says they're in charge. In the military, they have a saying that my dad used to quote all the time, you may not like the person, but you are going to respect the uniform. The, the fact that they have stripes on their uniform or, or gold and silver on their collar, you respected the position they have, even if you didn't like the person. And the same thing with us, uh, with uh, our, our government. So this, this section is really an indictment against the parents, the city, and I can't imagine being the parent trying to t drag my kid out to be stoned by the, by the town. Here, and what are they saying to the elders? Our son is stubborn and rebellious. He's contentious. He's, he's a fighting. He's fighting us all the time. He will not avoid our voice. Then it says, and he is a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, he's partying all the time. He's always drunk. He's always at feasting. He's always, we would use the word partying. He's always out partying all the time. So this is a son who is pretty bad. Hopefully nobody's got any kids that way, but if you do, then I feel sorry for you. They were to take this, and this says, All the men of this city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall you put evil away from among you, and all Israel will hear and fear. This is something that God was very serious about. Evil was not to be found in Israel. Now we know, if you read through the rest of the book... Evil was always found in Israel, it seems like. But the idea was God saying, you're going to put away evil. The purpose of government is to protect people from the evil. This is why the, the power of the sword, according to Paul in Romans, was given to the government. They have the pun power to punish, up to and including executions. That was, that's the job of the government, to keep people safe and to protect them. And he says that when it happens, it'll bring people to fear because they hear of, the, the, of this punishment. Do something, there should be punishment. This is the same thing when you're, when you're trying to train your kids up. If you, the, the old saying, wait till your father gets home, was a terrible thing to have done because there's this hours of delay between what you did and the discipline that followed. It was, it was very famous, very, very much, because the father was the disciplinarian at the time. Discipline needs to be handled as close to the event as possible so that there's the association with pain to the event. And this is important. People will talk about that it's not right to cause pain, but pain has to be inflicted for wrongdoing. So that the next time that you're tempted to do the wrong, you remember the pain and you have to decide, is the pain worth the disobedience. God does that with us all the time. We choose to disobey him, and he brings pain into our life. And then we look at it and say, well, gee, that just wasn't worth it. I, the pain hurt a lot more than what I think I got out of the disobedience. That is on purpose so that we don't <laughs> continue doing wrong things. And sometimes we continue doing wrong things until we finally can get trained and, and brought up. Annie was sharing a bunch of things with me today about things we've been teaching and, and how finally listening has released her of a lot of the pain that has been out there. But this is what God wants. He wants us to learn from what we've gone through. And what, I've teach, what I teach here, I've been through almost everything I teach because I've learned it the hard way, just like everybody else. I just like to make sure you all don't have to learn things the hard way. 
give you, give you advanced knowledge so that you don't have to learn the hard way. Unfortunately, we're human and we usually have to learn the hard way. Very few people can learn from others' mistakes. If we did, we wouldn't have any problem because we'd read the Bible and look at all the mistakes these guys made and not make the same mistakes. But yet, we keep wanting to make the same mistakes and then when we've made the mistake, we, God shows us the, the lesson that we should have learned and we go, oh, uh, maybe I should have done the way, you know, did it the right way. <laughs> but this is what it is. And it says God is going to put evil away. And this has been a phrase through all this time that he puts the evil away from Israel. When Korah and, and the others rebelled against Moses, God told the people, separate yourself from, Mo, from Korah. And God removed the problem. He opened the earth and swallowed Korah and, and his whole family and those who were in rebellion. Yeah. You want to talk about something that's going to shock people and make them think twice about going against the authority? If you saw the earth swallow the rebellious person up, and you're going to think uh, maybe two, three, four, five times about going in, in rebelling against somebody. But God is saying, be good and deal with sin. We need to deal with sin in our own life. We need to deal with sin in our families. It would be shocking. It would be shocking. But this is how serious, especially when it comes to God's seriousness with authority. God defended Moses from the Korites. When Miriam and Aaron stood up against Moses, what happened to Miriam? She was struck with leprosy. And the only thing that got her out of it was that Moses prayed for her and said, forgive, you know, forgive her, we're not going anywhere until she's, until she's healed. David understood this whole thing when, he, when Saul was in the cave and he could have killed Saul and, and he cut the hem off his garment while Saul was using the, using the restroom in the cave. And he went out. But you think about this. He was struck with what he had already done. He had dared to even cut the robe of Saul, and it repented him. But he used it to say, I could have killed you, and I didn't. But he was still sorrowful that he had cut the robe of Saul. God has strong opinions about authority. And just because we think an authority is done does not necessarily mean they are done. Because when God puts somebody in authority, he keeps them in that authority until he removes them. And you look at what God has used. He's used Babylon to discipline Israel. Terrible country, sinful, idolatrous country, and God uses them to, to discipline Israel. He uses Rome to discipline Israel at the, uh, before they're sent out. He uses things that will totally be shocking to us at times on that. Verse 22. If a man have committed a sin wholly worthy of death, he and he shall be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, and your land that your land be not defiled, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So this is something that God says. Cursed is any man that hangs on a tree. Why? Because Jesus was going to be the curse as he hung on the tree or the cross. He was going to be cursed. He became sin. And God is saying, you're not going to hang somebody and leave them up. God was not looking to do what most of the world does. You know, when Most of the world, when they hung somebody, they left them up as an example. Rome left everybody up on the crosses. 
The fact that Jesus was taken down from the cross as quick as he was on the same day was quite a miracle because that is not what was done. Rome, Rome lined the highways all over the place with people hanging on crosses that were long dead. For one thing, when you hung on a cross, you usually took uh, three to seven days to die. It was not a quick, agonizing de uh, uh, quick death. It was a long, excruciating, agonizing, and you drowned. You drowned or suffocated because of the way it was done. And that's why they were going to break Jesus' legs and they saw that he was dead. And that was very unusual for somebody to die that quick. But he died because of many other things that were going on in his, thus the fact that he became sin and the father turned his back on him and all of the things that he'd been beating, beaten before. But God is saying, if a man commits a sin worthy of death, and there's a whole lot of commands worthy of death. Okay? We've talked about them in Exodus. We talked about them in Leviticus. Uh, Kidnapping was worthy of death. Murder was worthy of death. Adultery was worthy of death. Uh, fornication was worthy of death. God's standards are a lot stricter than what man today practices. And for us, about the only thing that's worthy of death in our world is first-degree murder. But God said kidnapping was a capital offense. If you kidnap somebody, you were, had caused so much pain in their life, most likely, that you were that you were to die. And so, and if you don't, if you look, read a King James, it doesn't say kidnapping, it says men stealing, which is kidnapping. <laughs> uh, but he said all the sexual sins were worthy of death. Why? Because God says that is such a special place in his heart that the husband and a wife only, period. Not... Uh, Anybody else involved in that relationship? And God says, if it's going to break that one, it's worthy of death. Why? Because marriage is a picture of the union of Jesus Christ and his church. And then Satan is working hard to destroy that picture. Very hard to destroy the picture of, the, of marriage. He's working very hard to destroy families because, again, if he can destroy the picture of the family, God is our father. To me, that's a very special thing. I had a pretty good father. I loved my father very much and have a good relationship with him. But there are many people out there that have had very bad relationships with their father to the point of either physical or emotional or even sexual abuse. And when they hear God being described as father, what do they think of? Yeah, I, need, I don't need a father. I know what fathers are like. This is Satan destroying what is so precious in its picture of God. And we need to be able to understand and be able to build up from our point of view as Christians what it means to be a family, what it means to be husband and wife, what it means to be a, a father and a mother to these kids so that they can have at least a glimmer of what it means when God says, I'm your father, how much love that has in it and how much care that has in it because it is very important that they see these pictures for what they're worth and not the distorted view that Satan is putting out in front of them. And it's hard nowadays. When you start talking about families, it's hard to, to get a good picture of it. Yeah, but anyway, Suzanne went to preschool, and, they, and the only one that had a father and mother in home was my daughter. Out of a class of 25 or 30 kids, she was the only one that had an intact family. That, and that was close to three decades, uh, three decades ago, less than that, but very close to it. 
it's getting worse. Most of these kids have never seen an intact family in their life. This is why it's important for us as a church to really build up family, really build up true marriage that's going to last. And I've, and I've shared with you, I've only had about five people in the four years ask me if I would conduct a marriage, and, and I take them through counseling, and usually they go two classes at the most with me before they decide I'm not going to be the one to do, the, do, the, do it because I talk about how serious marriage is. That it has to be built on objective love and, and it is forever. It's not, it's not something you can decide to get out of. And most people don't want to hear that and they say, nope, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't want you to be doing this. And I'm glad they don't because I want, if I'm going to marry somebody, I want it to be under God as a covenant that's going to last. Because it is a very serious issue. It is not something you just jump into with the idea, well, if, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll just, we'll just go somewhere. No, that's not marriage, at least not in God's eyes. Because marriage is something that does not get broken. God says he married Israel, and he says in Hosea, I have not divorced you, Israel. When we get married to Christ, this is another reason why we know we can't lose our salvation, because when we are married to Christ... He is not going to divorce us no matter what we do. He is not going to issue divorce papers. He is not going to say, you're no longer my mine. We have eternal security because, it, number one, we have eternal life. By definition, we have life that does not end. Okay, so you can't lose your salvation just by the way Jesus defines it. Eternal life. The next step is, what did I do to get saved? Nothing. All I did was admit that I'm a sinner and say, come into my heart. I did nothing to get saved. I can do nothing to get unsaved. Because Jesus has taken me as his child. Then we get into the picture of the marriage. It says he has taken us as his spouse and he is not going to issue a decree of divorce. Do not fall into this idea that somehow you can lose your salvation. Now, you may not be saved, possibly, because that gets into the weed and the tares and Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. But you cannot lose salvation once you have it. And I'm going to tell you, if you have it, you know you have it because you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and there is nobody who can tell you you're not saved. I know that I know that I know that he is my Savior. Mostly because of how he's changed my life and how he's, how he's managed my life for me. All the sins that you've committed, when you come to Christ, he puts them under the blood. And not only your past sins, but all the future sins that you're going to go are going to go under the blood. Now, that does not mean you won't have some consequences because of them. But they're under the blood, and we need to release them from our memory because God has forgotten about them. And this is, we get bound so often by living in the past. But he won't forget it when we go up for the... The Bema seat is not sin issues. The Bema seat is the judgment of your works that you have done, whether, whether you've let him do works or you, if you've tried to do works yourself. Your works get put into the fire, and what comes out is your reward. We as Christians will not stand before God and 
for our sins because Jesus paid for all of our sins. So if you're saved, you don't have to go to the Bema seat? You're going to go to the Bema seat. You're not going to go to the White Throne Judgment. Okay. Now, even at the White Throne Judgment, though, they're not going there because of their sins. They're going there because they've rejected Jesus Christ. Okay, now they will be punished. You've accepted him and truly believe that, yes. And that belief is not just, I think that he existed, I believe that he died. It is, I am putting my faith and trust in him. You will know that you're saved because you're putting your trust and faith in him. I know that I cannot do anything that deserves heaven. I know that I deserve hell. But Jesus paid it all, and I fully, completely believe that. Because I have a terrible past life. All, many of us have had a terrible past lives. Even those who get saved young have had have past lives. Some have worse than others, but what, but what we do is we release that to God, and we rest in what he says we are. We let God be our defender. We let God be our one that helps us grow, and I keep going over this, and this is probably the most important thing that we can learn. God does not want us li living in past regrets because he has paid for the past regrets. They are gone. We need, to we need to get them gone. We need to quit dwelling on them. On the flip side of this, don't worry about what's coming in the future because you don't have any control of it. If we start living in the moment that we're living in, this moment, and it's gone as soon as we, as soon as we say this moment, it's already seconds past. I need to live in the moment that I'm living in because this is the only place that I can serve God. I can't serve God in the future. I can't serve God in the past. I have to serve him now. Live in the here and now. And this is what counselors tell everybody all the time. And they get paid mega dollars to tell them what Jesus already says. Live in the now. Forget the past. Quit dwelling on the future. Live now. And we want to keep that in mind. Why can we not live in the past? Because God has covered it, it's gone. Jesus paid for it. All the punishment that is due for the past sins, Jesus paid for it. And the more we get that into our mind, the more we can start saying, okay, I'm going to get aware of the past. And don't say, for, you probably can't totally forget it, but you don't live in the power of what it brought. You let it go. And you also don't worry about the future. Because I know people who worry so much about the future that they're, they're not living today either. You know, they're, 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 they're worried about what they've done in the past. They're worried about what they might do in the future or what might come. And they totally... The question I have is, we all have a cross to bear. Is that a true statement? That we all have to get a bear on cross or pack on parachute or uh, those kind of statements make me feel better. You know, that we all have a cross to bear or we pack our own parachute. We don't trust anyone else to. I do not believe those are valid statements because all of my hope and my faith is in Christ, not not what I can do. The more that I trust in God, the better off I'm going to be. I don't, I don't want to be any of it being what I have done. Now that doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing. Okay, we go forward, we do, we do the best we can, but I'm not worrying about what's going on. I'm not worrying about what's past. I don't, I don't try to control everything. Now believe me, I'm a manager. I like to control things. It's easy for me to control things. That's the way I'm built that way. I'm an administrator. I'm a, I'm a manager. I'm, I'm very much the type of person who tries to control things. God had to break, that, break me of that, and it took a long time for him to break me of that. I am still an administrator. I still make decisions, but I'm also now being more flexible to say, okay, God, 
What do you want? I've tried to bring him into the planning. Okay, God, this plan's not working. Where are we supposed to go? So we need to be very careful because I'm not saying we don't make any plans. I mean, we should be planning for retirement. We should be planning part of our life, but we can't get so tied into our plans that it controls us completely. Uh, when, I was, when I was very young, even before I was married, I could have told you what I was going to be doing three years from now because that's how structured my life was. My life was so structured, I knew where I was going to be, when I was going to be there, and what I was going to be doing. And I was very much that way. I lived way too much into the future. Because if God changed my plans, I got upset. You know, God, we can't change this plan. It's, it's upsetting the apple cart. We can't do this. And it took him years to break that in me. Now I'm a little more flexible. I still make plans, but I'm a lot more flexible now to say, okay, God, you're making a change. Okay, well, what are we doing? But this is where we want to be. God is wanting a holy, righteous people, but he does the work. He's our defender when people come against us. He's the one that's going to change who we are. He's the one that's forgiven our past. He is the one that's in control of the future. And you know what? He's even in control of the moment that I'm living in if I will let him be in control. And he'll tell me who to talk to, what to say, and how to do it. What did he tell the disciples? Don't worry about what you're going to say when they bring you before the council. Don't have all these long-winded speeches and plans that God would fill it. Does that mean I don't study? I don't know things? No, I study. I, I do this all the time, and so did they. They studied. When I come to t teach these classes, I don't come and say, okay, God, we're just going to open up the Bible, and you're going to fill my head with, with some knowledge today. I spend hours, usually, studying these things, at least, at least one to two, three hours, and up to ten, to prepare for these messages. Only to have God quite often say, you're not teaching that today, you're going to teach something else. Uh, which is fine too because, because I've learned from other places and it taps into those things. God will not just dump knowledge into your head. We need to put knowledge in our head. We need to study. We need to understand the scriptures. We need to learn and then God will have things to draw out of us. Could he just dump knowledge into our head if he wanted to? Sure he can and I believe there's times he's done that even for me because I'll be talking about something I didn't even know that I knew anything about and find out that it was right. God can do it, but that's not his normal way of doing it. This is like when we see in the Bible, many people were rescued from death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example. I love what they said to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, who's going to deliver you from my hand? And they go, our God can deliver us from your hand, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we're going to serve the Lord. And in their case, they were delivered. But not every single person was delivered. Isaiah was put into a, a log and sawn in half. Jesus died. All the disciples except for John died violent deaths. And in John's case, it wasn't for lack of trying. Rome tried to kill him on several occasions and couldn't kill him because God wasn't going to let him die. They tried boiling him in oil. They sent him to an insane asylum. They tried poisoning him. They, they tried hard to kill him, and God says, no, I'm not going to let you die for whatever reason. But you know, we need to be ready. Whatever God sends our way, we need to be ready. If he lets us die for him, then it will be for his glory that we die for him. Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of Christians who gave their life for Christ. 
so that he could be exalted. Annie's favorite book, The Hiding Place, Betsy uh, Corey Ten, Corey, uh, yeah. Ten Boom, Betsy Ten Boom gave her life and it was a great example to the people that were in the prison camp. Many times God uses pain and suffering to exalt his name. But God has a plan and he has a reason and he will use whatever we go through. All we need to do is be willing to let him use it. Because he's going to use it. Just like I said at the very beginning, when good things happen and we think they're wonderful, then it leads to something bad. And that happens so often. How many times have you gone through something and you go, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, only to be worse off next week, a year, or two years later, because it just didn't last. People who, who play the lotto or the lottery and get these big winnings, most of them have come back and said, I wish I had never won all that money because it has ruined their lives. And everybody who hears that go, I'd love to try that. Well, no, you wouldn't because if you don't know how to handle money, a lot of money gotten quickly will ruin your life. And if you don't believe me, look at most of our athletes and movie stars and singers. Money ruins them because they don't know how to handle it. They go, it goes to their heads and very few of them successfully handle large sums of money overnight. We want to be careful. What we think is good may not really be good in our life. It may lead to hard times. But even those hard times will then be used by God to, to teach and to build us up. Yeah. And God will use anything that comes our way if we will allow him and just be willing to see what happened. And right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. You are the one that leads. You are the one that guides. And Lord, you desire us to be willing to let you use us. And Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, we ask that they admit that you're a sinner and believe that you gave your life for them for recovering their sins, that they deserve death, and that they will accept your gift and make you the Lord of their life and contact a church to help them get started in their walk. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.